of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast, available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode this story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. A while ago, long enough that I cannot find the message now in spite of a lot of looking, we got a request to do an episode on someone called Dr. Anna. And after a little bit of digging, I pieced together that the person being referenced was Anna Pierce Hobbs Bigsby, which is sometimes misspelled as Bixby with an X. She is often credited with discovering the cause of milk sickness, but then her discovery was totally overlooked by the medical community. She came back to my attention recently after I read an article on this that I found really frustrating, and we will get to why I found it frustrating, but basically I got real fired up about it, and I moved her up to the top of the list, and then during research, I found a whole other layer of stuff to be frustrated about, and we will get to that too. So today, this episode is divided roughly into three acts. First, we'll talk about what milk sickness was, since most people are not likely to have had any experience with it today. Then we'll take a look at how the medical understanding of milk sickness progressed through the 19th and early 20th centuries. And then we'll finish with a look at this woman who became known as Dr. Anna, and that part is going to go in a somewhat different direction from most of our episodes. There are a lot of illnesses that can be transmitted through milk, especially unpasteurized milk. Earlier this year, we talked about outbreaks of scarlet fever that were connected to milk in the 19th century. And prior to the widespread use of pasteurization, people contracted diseases like typhoid, diphtheria, bovine tuberculosis, and various gastrointestinal illnesses, all from milk. But milk sickness doesn't come from a microorganism. It is a type of poisoning. At least two different plants are believed to cause this type of poisoning. One is white snake root, which is also called rich weed in some older texts. This is a perennial plant that grows to about five feet or one and a half meters tall. It blooms in the late summer and into the fall with clusters of fluffy white flowers. This plant is native to the eastern half of North America, like all the way to Texas is on the far western end. It likes the shade, so a lot of the time it's found along the edges of woodlands. 
The other plant is Rayless goldenrod, and that's native to parts of the southwest United States. This is another perennial. It produces bright yellow flowers, and it also grows to a height of roughly five feet. Each of these plants can contain varying amounts of a mixture of toxins known as trematol, and it's possible that they may produce other toxins as well. Cattle and other animals that eat these plants can develop a condition called trembles, which is marked by trembling, refusal to eat, seizures, and ultimately death. It's generally believed that lactating animals are less affected by these toxins because they excrete them in their milk before they can do a lot of damage. But that means that they're nursing young ingest the toxins, as do any humans who drink the milk or eat butter or other foods made from it. There are also some reports of people and animals getting sick after eating the meat of an animal that died of trembles or was slaughtered after showing symptoms, but that is not as clearly documented. In humans, milk sickness was known by a lot of different names in the 18th and 19th centuries. That included milk sick, slows, staggers, swamp sickness, river fever, and sick stomach. The condition is a form of acidosis, and it causes tremors, muscle pain, weakness, loss of appetite, vomiting, constipation, and eventually coma and death. So very like the symptoms of trembles. This also causes a person's breath to have a very distinctive acetone-like odor. These same symptoms can also result from diabetic ketoacidosis. So especially before insulin was isolated and used as a treatment for diabetes, doctors could sometimes misdiagnose diabetes as milk sick or vice versa. But unlike diabetes, milk sickness often struck entire families or even whole communities all at once because everyone was getting milk from the same cows. Numbers are really impossible to verify at this point, but in some parts of the United States, milk sickness was probably a leading cause of death in the 18th and 19th centuries. Sometimes milk sickness was such a recurring or traumatic issue in an area that places were named after it, like Milk Sick Ridge and Milk Sick Cove. Whole communities sometimes broke up and moved because it wasn't clear exactly what was going on, but something was killing people and livestock, and there was no clear cause and no effective treatment. At the same time, it took a while for milk sickness to really get the attention of doctors and medical researchers. A big reason was that it just was not very common in more populated areas, and especially not in major cities. Like cows living at a dairy farm, grazing in cultivated pastures, or being fed hay or silage, were not likely to eat a bunch of snake root from the edge of a woodland. If one of them did, her milk was mixed in with the milk from a lot of other cows before it was sold, so any toxin that it may have contained was diluted by the time the milk got to customers. So all that meant the people who were most likely to develop milk sickness were the ones living in more remote, less affluent areas. People whose cows had to forage whatever they could find and weren't necessarily being kept in an enclosed, cultivated pasture. Milk sickness outbreaks tended to be worst in times of dryness or drought when other plants died and cows had to graze farther afield to get enough to eat. Although dairy cows often survived after eating these plants because the toxins were coming out in their milk, a lot of other livestock animals didn't, so it wasn't unheard of for outbreaks of milk sickness and trembles to strike at the same time, sickening and killing members of the family and the animals that were critical to their livelihood in the middle of a drought when food and water were already scarce. This also means that milk sickness was a disease that was directly tied to the United States' westward expansion and the forced displacement of indigenous peoples from their ancestral homelands. Homesteaders and other new arrivals tried to turn forest into farmlands, and their grazing animals ate plants that they would not have encountered otherwise. In particular, milk sickness struck most often in the Midwest and the Upper South. The first written reports of what may have been milk sickness date back to before the Revolutionary War in North Carolina. Then in 1809, physician Thomas Barbie published a description of what sounds like milk sickness in a piece called Notes from Cincinnati. 
An anonymous 1811 report references Barbie's piece and also the experiences of two people, Alexander Telford and Arthur Stewart, both of whom lived in Miami County, Ohio. According to this piece, Telford's family had been too sick to milk the cows, leaving the calves to drink the milk themselves. The calves, which had previously been healthy, all died. The family recovered, and keeping the cows in a cultivated pasture seemed to solve the problem. Both Telford and Stewart's children had also immediately vomited after drinking the milk, and their subsequent illness had been less severe than their family members who had drunk the same milk but had not thrown it up. Telford's horses had also died after he left them to feed in the woods, but the two horses he kept out of the woods were fine. The author of this piece also noted that dogs seemed to be immune to this condition unless they ate the meat of an animal that died of it, and also noted that unlike most other epidemic diseases, milk sickness didn't seem to cause fever or chills. Based on all of these details, the writer concluded that the culprit was a plant that the cows were eating. The piece ended, quote, should the present opinion be confirmed, the discovery may be regarded as one of considerable importance. It will at least rob the disease of half its terrors and render it no longer a stumbling block to emigration. It will point out a certain means of prevention and inspire a well-grounded expectation of a total extinction of the malady in a few years. It would be an object of great curiosity and probably of utility also to discover the plant which possesses such active qualities. One of the modes in which this inquiry might be conducted is an examination of the contents of the stomachs of those animals which die suddenly. Should such a discovery be made, it is hoped that a specimen of the plant, with any information that may be collected concerning it, will be put into the hands of a proper person that physicians and botanists generally may become acquainted with it. This piece was titled Disease in Ohio Ascribed to Some Deleterious Quality in Milk of Cows. It was printed in the Medical Repository, which was the first medical journal to be published in the United States. And while the author didn't know which specific plant was causing this poisoning, otherwise this article was mostly correct. This apparently, though, did not spark a widespread effort to try to identify the plant that was causing this illness. And we'll get to that after a sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Annabay. Annabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Annabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. 
During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid-cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com slash deals. That's Alienware.com slash deals. By the 18-teens and 20s, observers and journalists were reporting large outbreaks of illness in people or animals which are either specifically described as milk sickness or lined up with its symptoms. For example, in 1818, a farmer named William Fox described hundreds of cows being sickened by an unidentified herb that had been found growing in their pasture near Old Vincennes, Indiana. Seven of these cows died, and Fox commented on the need for a medical botanist. While Fox was not the first or last person to connect this condition to a plant, other people also pointed to a range of other possible causes, including miasmas, or bad air, which were still being blamed for causing illnesses before the development of the germ theory of disease. One of the most famous victims of milk sickness died in 1818, Nancy Hanks Lincoln, mother of Abraham Lincoln, who died on October 5th of that year. There's some disagreement about this. Some sources conclude that she died of tuberculosis or some other condition. But Nancy Hanks Lincoln was one of several people in the area around Pigeon Creek, Indiana, who died around the same time. This is sometimes cited as one of the reasons the Lincoln family moved from Indiana to Illinois. In 1823, Stephen Harriman Long led an expedition up the Minnesota River and encountered several communities that had been stricken with an illness, including some deaths, that locals believed had been caused by milk. Four years later, Thomas L. McKinney, superintendent of Indian Affairs, tried to get milk for his camp on the Mississippi River about 18 miles north of St. Louis, He was told that people in that area stopped drinking milk after a certain point in the spring and also tried to wean their calves because later in the year, something in the milk made people sick. Edmund Flagg's Far West, or A Tour Beyond the Mountains, chronicled his travels in 1836 and 1837 and had this to say, quote, A mysterious disease called the milk sickness, because it was supposed to be communicated by that liquid, was once alarmingly prevalent in certain isolated districts of Illinois. Whole villages were depopulated, and though the mystery was often and thoroughly investigated, the cause of the disease was never discovered. By some, it was ascribed to the milk or to the flesh of cows feeding upon a certain unknown poisonous plant found only in certain districts. By others, to certain springs of water or to the exhalations of certain marshes. The mystery attending its operations and its terrible fatality at one period created a perfect panic in the settlers. Nor was this at all wonderful. The disease appears now to be vanishing. The idea that milk sickness was vanishing in the 1830s was optimistic, but it was around this time that some people might have identified the right plant. Anna Pierce Hobbs' discovery was reportedly made in about 1834. We'll have more on that later. In 1838, a farmer named John Rowe published an article saying that white snake root was the cause of trembles. He had confirmed this by feeding some of it to calves and the calves had died. But then in 1841, Daniel Drake, who was a really well-known doctor who wrote a lot of influential medical works, he dismissed this conclusion basically because Roe was a farmer and not a doctor. In Drake's words, quote, a professional scrutiny only can be relied on in such cases. Drake actually agreed that a plant was the cause of milk sickness, but he thought the plant was poison ivy. 
The medical community didn't unanimously agree that a plant was involved in milk sickness, though, and people were still suggesting various possible causes. For example, also in 1841, J.S. Seaton published Treatise on the Cause of the Disease Called by the People the Milk Sickness, as it occurs in the western and southern states. And that speculated that milk sickness was caused by arsenic. There is some overlap in the symptoms of milk sickness and arsenic poisoning, and Seton believed that milk sickness was more common during dry years because the arsenic was a lot more concentrated in whatever water sources it had contaminated. This makes more sense than a lot of the things people suggested besides plants. (laughs) Uh, Dr. F.R. Wagoner also wrote on milk sickness in 1859, quote, a certain species of vegetable, it not being known, abounds in the woodland and is matured by the later months of summer or first autumnal, at which season of the year the grass of the prairies becomes dry and tough when the cattle resort to the timber for sustenance, feeding upon it, and as the cow brute is very susceptible to its toxical influence, often sicken and die, while others, perhaps eating a less quantity, pass the season without ever showing signs of being poisoned by it, From such careless and unsuspecting persons using from day to day the milk, butter, and flesh of these animals often fall victims to the disease. Other observers equally entitled to credence contend that it is, as I intimated, of a telluric origin, rising from the earth in the form of a vapor, or the nocturnal vapors being conducting mediums depositing during the night on the herbage then communicated as in the former cases. Wagoner also noted that there wasn't much that could be done, describing treatment for milk sickness as, quote, one, palliate the gastric irritability, allay vomiting and nausea, two, evacuate the bowels, three, support the patient. In 1867, according to a report in the Missouri Republican, a man named William Jerry said that he had discovered the cause of milk sickness after eating a plant that had made him ill, including causing him to tremble violently. According to this report, he had planned to feed this same plant to cows to see if it had the same effect with the hope of claiming a reward that the legislature of Illinois had offered a few years previously. Illinois and Kentucky and possibly some other states offered rewards to anybody who could really prove what was causing milk sickness. Not clear if Jerry ever did this experiment or tried to get the reward, though. As the germ theory of disease became more widely accepted later in the 19th century, some researchers concluded that milk sickness must be caused by a microorganism. But eventually, in the 1920s, James F. Couch of the USDA documented the connection between milk sickness and white snake root, including isolating toxins from the plant in 1927. By this point, it was becoming more common for milk to be pasteurized, and Couch confirmed that the heat of pasteurization was not enough to neutralize the toxin that caused milk sickness. In about 1930, Couch also found the same toxins in Rayless Goldenrod. Although other people had made a connection between milk sickness and white snake root decades before, this was the first time there was clear analysis to back it up. The USDA started printing educational materials to inform farmers and ranchers of the dangers of these plants. Research also continued in the decades that followed, with researchers establishing the toxin's lethal dose and its toxic mechanisms within the body. By this point, milk sickness really was on a decline, less because people knew to keep livestock away from these plants and more because dairy cows were generally not as likely to be grazing outside of cultivated pastures. Even so, the last reported cases of milk sickness in the U.S. were diagnosed in 1963. Two babies living near St. Louis had developed acidosis from an unknown cause, and they were successfully treated with an intravenous bicarbonate to lower the acidity in their blood. They had already recovered when an older doctor, who had seen cases of milk sickness many years before, made the connection. It turned out that the babies had been given milk from a farmer whose cows had been freely grazing in an area where snake root was growing. Reports of animals dying from eating snake root continued up until at least the 1980s. So what about this Dr. Anna? We will get to her after a sponsor break. 
tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Pretty much all the articles you'll see today about Dr. Anna Pierce Hobbs Bigsby, often just called Dr. Anna, hit the same basic points. They usually talk about how she was born Anna Pierce, somewhere in the eastern United States, maybe Philadelphia, and her family later moved to Rock Creek, Illinois. Before her first marriage, she decided to go back east to study medicine in Philadelphia, but at that point, medical education wasn't really accessible to women. The first woman to earn an MD in the United States was Elizabeth Blackwell, who we have covered on the show before in 1849. So, according to these articles, Anna Pierce studied what she could, reportedly taking courses in midwifery, dentistry, and nursing, although there aren't any written records of this. That makes Dr. Anna an honorary title, but if she really did have training in midwifery and dentistry and nursing, she would have been at least as well-trained as a lot of other people working as doctors in the 1830s, if not more. The field of medicine was really not very standardized yet. No. Uh, To continue the recent article recap, when Pierce returned to Rock Creek, she was the only person in the area who had formal medical training. Not long after returning, she married Isaac Hobbs. She started trying to figure out the cause of milk sickness after her mother and sister-in-law died of it. She thought it might be caused by something the cows were eating that was showing up in their milk, so she started following them and collecting samples of what they grazed on. So, those same points show up in a lot of articles. In the words of Mrs. Sidney Snook Heyman in History of Hardin County, Illinois, written for the Centennial, which was published in 1839, quote, According to her carefully kept diary, the source of the milk's poisoning was finally discovered after a strange fashion. 
That strange fashion was that Hobbes met an indigenous woman in the woods who identified the plant for her. So this woman's name is not recorded anywhere, but some articles explain her presence in the woods by saying she had been displaced when the Shawnee were removed from Ohio following the Treaty of Wapakoneta, which the Shawnee living in Ohio were forced to sign on August 8, 1831. This treaty made it sound like this removal was the Shawnee's idea, describing their, quote, perfect ascent and, quote, willingness and anxiety to remove west of the Mississippi River. That was blatantly untrue. So, Heyman's account in the history of Hardin County went on to say, quote, Dr. Hobbs took the woman into her home and learned from her the cause of the deadly milk plague. Aunt Shawnee, as the Indian woman became known in the community, went with Dr. Hobbs into the woods and showed her the herb, the poisonous snake root, which they believed caused the cattle disease. For many years after that, according to tradition, every fall, the boys and men of the community, armed with hoes and knives, trooped through the forests to destroy the root. Its eradication stopped the plague, but not before it had ruined, in large measure, one of the most promising of the county's pioneer industries. Dr. Anna reportedly also kept a little patch of snake root in her own yard so that she could show other people what it looked like. Hobbes's diary reportedly said, quote, I am convinced now that the poison which kills the calves and people saves the cows by being daily discharged through the milk glands. So I am writing a few letters this morning and telling everyone I can to abstain wholly from milk and butter from June till after killing frosts. She went on to say, quote, sheep and goats are careful in selecting their foods, and horses are what teachers call graminivorous, that is, grass eaters, while cattle are herbivorous and not careful in selecting. These things prove to us that it is not a grass, but an herb that is spreading sorrow and death among us. So these selections that are purportedly from Dr. Anna's diary, which I read in multiple recent articles about her, just did not feel right to me. Like goat's reputation for eating anything up to and including tin cans is not really accurate, but the idea that they were so picky that they would not eat snake root just seemed like an odd thing to say, (laughs) especially considering today you can rent goats to eat unwanted plants like kudzu. We've talked about this in the show before. Horses also eat more than just grass, and there are a lot of historical reports of horses dying of trembles or milksick, including things that were published in newspapers. The language just felt a little off to me. And then on top of all of that, while various sources quoted the same few passages, I just, I couldn't find evidence of the diary itself anywhere. Dr. Anna's work doesn't seem to have been reported in medical literature until 1966, when Dr. William D. Snively Jr. and Luanna Furby published an article titled Discoverer of the Cause of Milk Sickness in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Overwhelmingly, more recent articles on Dr. Anna trace back to this one, sometimes by citing other articles that cited it first. According to the footnotes, their source was called Anna's War Against River Pirates and Cave Bandits of John A. Merle's Northern Dive, Unpublished Prose Manuscript, Revised as Ballads from the Bluffs, Elizabethtown, Illinois, published by the author, 1948. That author was Elihu N. Hall, also called Judge Hall because he served as a judge for Hardin County, Illinois. For reference, John A. Merle was an outlaw who lived from about 1806 to 1844, and his exploits were greatly embellished and sensationalized after his death, including in this book. This footnote also struck me as odd. Among other things, why? I would go so far as to say, why in the world were they using (laughs) an unpublished book called Anna's War Against River Pirates and Cave Bandits of John A. Merle's Northern Dive as a reliable source of historical information in a JAMA article. (laughs) Tracy could not find a scanned copy of Ballads from the Bluffs, but she did get a scan of Anna's War, thanks to Erin Lysak, research specialist at the Special Collections Research Center at Morris Library at Southern Illinois University. 
The title page of Anna's War describes it as a romantic story, and its preface acknowledges that elements may seem superstitious or impossible. The Illinois State Historical Society published a review of its successor, Ballads from the Bluffs, in 1948, which describes that book as, quote, adventure stories, romances, and folklore dealing principally with characters in Ozark Bluff country of southern Illinois. According to rare book sites that previously had copies for sale, the title page of Ballads from the Bluffs reads in part, quote, a prehistoric and historic romance dealing with Aboriginal and later races who lived in the Ozark Bluffs and Mountains, and it is written down to the days of the bloody-handed and wicked river pirates and cave bandits fought by brave, blue-eyed Anna. Sigh. So none of this suggests that either book should be uncritically read as any kind of straightforward fact. So if you're thinking, wait, didn't y'all read from the history of Hardin County, Illinois by Mrs. Sidney Snook Heyman a few minutes ago? That seems like maybe a more definitive source than a book of adventure stories and romances. And yes, we did read from that earlier. Mrs. Sidney Snook Heyman was a member of the Hardin County Historical Committee, and another historical committee member was Elihu N. Hall, author of Anna's War Against River Pirates and Ballads from the Bluffs. Heyman was assigned to write the agriculture section of History of Hardin County, and that was not something that she knew anything about. She included the story of Dr. Anna based on information that Hall gave to her, and he gave her that information with the express hope that it would be part of her write-up. Elihu N. Hall also lived in Rock Creek. He was born in 1870, which was the year after Dr. Anna died, and he died in 1957. He claimed to have her journal, and the journals of at least two of her relatives, and to have heard stories about her from people in the area which he used to write these books. So, Anna Pierce Hobbs, as she was in this story, later Anna Pierce Hobbs Bigsby, was definitely a real person. Among other things, she and her relatives and descendants show up in various census records. I think there are descendants living today. I'm so sorry if I have offended you. It is likely that at least some of this story about her is true, like that she was a midwife and was really dedicated to helping her community. It is also possible that an indigenous woman told her about White Snake Root and that she took steps to try to eradicate it from around Rock Creek decades before the USDA confirmed the cause of milk sickness. But... A lot of Hall's writing about Dr. Anna is incredibly dramatic. The title of Anna's War Against River Pirates and Cave Bandits of John A. Merle's Northern Dive kind of speaks for itself. Dr. Anna is written as a larger-than-life folk hero, angel of the Ozarks, a praying doctor, and a teacher who worked miracles, evading outlaws at some points and converting them to upstanding Christians at others. There is a cave of hidden treasure. There is a daring leap from a cliff to escape her murderous second husband, Asen Bigsby, who she married in 1847. In this story, Bigsby starts a fire to try to flush her out, but the fire is extinguished by a very well-timed storm. Basically, this manuscript reads like a sensational novel, and the milk sickness story is part of one of its 38 chapters. So I decided to do this episode because I was really frustrated by an article I read recently that was titled, How an 1800s Midwife Solved a Poisonous Mystery. This article acknowledges that according to this story, a Shawnee woman showed Dr. Anna what plant was causing milk sickness, but it still really makes it sound like Dr. Anna was the one who solved the mystery. And this is not unique to this one article. It's why I didn't do this episode earlier on. There are a lot of pieces over the last few years that really give Dr. Anna the vast majority of the credit while including this indigenous woman's knowledge almost as an aside. Maybe Dr. Anna could have worked out the cause of milk sickness on her own without this woman's help. But while there was disagreement about the cause of milk sickness, people had been connecting it to plants almost all the way back to its first descriptions in writing. 
And according to this story, it was the woman known as Aunt Shawnee, not Dr. Anna, who made the connection to which specific plant. So I expected to be focused in this episode on the way this indigenous woman's involvement has really been minimized and overlooked and erased in so many articles. I did not expect that I would wind up questioning whether this entire account was genuine. (laughs) And we want to stress that it is completely understandable that people, especially non-historians, have used this JAMA article as a source and taken its accuracy for granted or have taken for granted that articles citing it are accurate. It is a peer-reviewed medical journal. That's the kind of thing we would normally point to and say, that's a good source. Right. But once you start looking deeper into this, it really starts to unravel. When I was trying to find the original manuscript this story came from, I emailed the Special Collections Research Center at Southern Illinois University to ask if they really did have it, since some of my sources suggested that they did, but I couldn't find it in their online search tools. The first person who got back to me was university archivist Matt Gorzalski, who sent a PDF of some papers from the collection of historian John W. Allen. This PDF included research compiled by a man named Norman Farrell in 1967, and this research echoed a whole lot of my questions about this manuscript and Dr. Anna and her diary. Based on his own research, Farrell had concluded that there was no diary and that Hall had made it up. Over the course of 10 exhibits, Farrell's report presented a lot of information that calls Hall's account into question in one way or another. Like, the 1880 census noted whether people could read or write, and according to those census records, several of Anna Hobbs' children and grandchildren and other relatives could not. I also found reference elsewhere to an 1866 legal document that described her as a midwife, which she signed with an X rather than signing her name, which would suggest that maybe she couldn't read or write. So did she really have formal training in Philadelphia? If she did, doesn't it seem like she would have made sure her children learned to read? Farrell's exhibits also made the connection between Hall's work and the passages on Dr. Anna that were included in History of Hardin County, including correspondence, which it made it clear that Hall wanted her to include that story in her agriculture section. Farrell also pointed out a number of factual discrepancies within Hall's account as well and traced multiple parallels between Dr. Anna and Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, concluding that Hall may actually have based his description of Anna on Blackwell. To be fair, though, you could point out similar parallels to a number of other 19th century women we have covered on the show. Some examples of discrepancies between Hall's work and what we can substantiate about Dr. Anna from other sources. Uh, Hall makes it sound like she and her family came to the area from Virginia when she was a teen. But according to marriage and birth records, she was born in Tennessee, got married there, and had children before moving to Illinois as an adult. Hall also makes it sound like her first husband died the winter after the source of milk sickness was discovered. But Isaac Hobbs seems to have died in 1845. Hall claims that Dr. Anna coined the word milk sick, but it had been in use for at least two decades before this could have happened. And he describes her children as school-aged when her first husband died, so after his death, she kept herself busy teaching them. But according to various birth and death records, those children would have been between the ages of 14 and 25 in 1845. That also circles back to that question of whether or not they were literate. So those are just a few examples. And you may have noticed that some of these contradictions also contradict our description of recent articles on Dr. Anna from the beginning of this part of the episode. On top of all of that, introducing Norman Farrell's report was a letter written to historian Lowell A. Derringer in 1967 recommending that this report be presented to readers of Outdoor Illinois, where Derringer worked. This letter, recommending that Norman Farrell's work be published in Outdoor Illinois, is by Dr. William Snively, Jr., co-author of the Journal of the American Medical Association article on Dr. Anna that had been published the year before. 
In this letter, Snively says he's not ready to rule out his previously expressed conviction that Anna Pierce Hobbs discovered milk sickness, but, quote, there are so many assertions in Hall's writings that have proved to be false that one is justified in looking with suspicion upon everything he wrote. In this letter, Snively also mentioned an effort to seek out descendants of Anna Pierce Hobbs to see if anybody had any stories about her that did not come from reading the work of Elihu Hall. I don't know what the results of those efforts were or what other correspondence they there may have been around this whole subject in the late 1960s, but there are just some really big question marks here. And we should also take a moment to note that the idea that Dr. Anna's search for the cause of milk sickness happened around 1834, making her the first to identify it, came from Snively and Furby's 1966 JAMA article. In Snively's own words, that year is his contention based on the quoted diary passages and, quote, various contemporary events. That year isn't actually documented in primary sources, making the idea that Dr. Anna was the first person to pinpoint the cause of milk sickness even shakier. Also, Snively and Furby published another article in JAMA in 1969 about the research that went into their book, Satan's Ferryman, A True Tale of the Old Frontier, in which they specifically describe Anna's war against river pirates as mixing fact and fancy with no indication of which is which, making it not reliable as a factual source. They don't really acknowledge there that they cited it as a factual source in a different article three years before. Also, Southern Illinois historian John W. Allen, whose papers this correspondence came from, wrote a column about Dr. Anna in 1957 that was reprinted in a book called It Happened in Southern Illinois in 1968. I had actually found that collection before getting in touch with the folks at Southern Illinois University. Like Snively and Furby, Allen draws from Elihu Hall's work, but he uses a lot of language like story and legend and tradition tells us. He doesn't specify a year or try to claim that Dr. Anna was the first person to make the connection between milk sickness and white snake root. And he also ends by saying of all the lore around Dr. Anna, quote, there is enough of the imaginary to create a supernatural air. I feel this is the more appropriate way to discuss material that came from this book than to have a glowing article saying this is the person who definitively discovered a thing. <laughs> and just as one final note, if you happen to have white snake root growing in your yard, you do not need to go pull it all up unless you have grazing animals that could eat it. Among other things, in eastern North America, it is a native plant that blooms later than many other flowers, so it's an important late-season food source for bees and other pollinators. Just do not eat it or feed it to livestock. It does spread its seeds similarly to dandelions, though, so keep an eye on that. So, yeah, we'll have a lot more to say the behind the scenes, I think. Oh, do you have listener mail in the meantime? We do. Uh, so, yes. So, first, a quick note from Christy. In our uh, Unearthed Part 1, July 17th episode, we talked about a carousel being restored by Carousel Works in Mansfield, Ohio. Uh, and I could not remember who sent us, a, someone had sent us a letter previously, talked to us about working, restoring carousels, um, and I could not put my hands on that email. And uh, so in this note, Christy noted, yes, indeed, that is where that person worked. We actually included their email in the Saturday Classic on Carousel's that we ran in January of 2022. As soon as Christy said this in this email, I was like, oh yeah, obviously I remember that now. Um, that was not the uh, the full email, but uh, I wanted to note that part. Thank you so much. And thank you for um, a very adorable dog picture. Two little dogs who are crying because they want to go for a walk. They're so, so sad that they are not yet on their walk. I mean, the way they're tortured by the, <laughs> the withholding of walks. The withholding of walk. <laughs> Uh, I also got a note from Linda who uh, wrote to say, uh, Hi, Holly and Tracy. While visiting family in Michigan, we decided to go to Greenfield Village. In case you're not aware, the village is comprised of historical buildings and homes. Henry Ford moved into one property 
and is now a museum. Exploring the grounds, we saw many connections to past episode subjects from Henry Ford himself in the rubber episodes to the Wright brothers in the history of flight to Thomas Edison in the current wars. However, the reason I'm writing is that Noah Webster's house is on the grounds. I messily recapped the Dictionary Wars for my husband and even caught the interest of my daughter momentarily distracting her from the search for ice cream, attached our pictures with my daughter in front of the house, Webster's Library, and a copy of his famous dictionary. I look forward to every episode, and an additional benefit of being on vacation is knowing I'll have several episodes in the queue to catch up on. Thanks for all the years of entertainment. Linda, Thank you, Linda, for this email and these pictures. I don't think I knew that Henry Ford moved a bunch of historical homes to one property. Wow, that's fascinating. I definitely did not know that there was a Noah Webster house in Michigan because there is also a Noah Webster house, which is his birthplace in Connecticut. Yeah. So it's like, this is the house that he lived in later on and wrote the dictionary in. The Connecticut one is the one he was born in. So thank you so much, Linda. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. I keep saying that, but now there's more social media than there were before and we're not on any of the new ones yet. So you can still find us at uh, facebook.com slash history, and I guess on the website formerly known as Twitter. And you can send us an email if you like at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 